Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Governor Gavin Newsom has proposed a 28th Amendment to the United States Constitution to end America's gun violence crisis. We have a star-studded show today, a show of shows. Former White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain joins us to talk about the importance of implementing the Biden agenda in the next two years. Then we'll talk to senior editor at The Atlantic, Ron Brownstein, about the Supreme Court's huge voting rights decision. But first we have the host of the enemies list, the one, the only, the Lincoln Project's Rick Wilson. I had to bring him back because, A, because we love him and also because he is our favorite, but also because Trump just got indicted again. And I feel like if Trump gets indicted, you got to get the band back together. And that includes the one, the only Rick Wilson. <laughs> you know, uh, a friend of mine, we were just texting with a friend of mine a little while ago. Chess, you like, what do you think? How many courthouses do you think he's going to be in this year? And then it was like, you know, New York, L.A. or New York, Atlanta, D.C. and Miami. And <laughs> she writes back. So he's a rapper. <laughs> <laughs> I got I got woes in many in many area codes. Trump has been charged with seven counts, including the Espionage Act. I just want to say, because I am uh, jaded, cynical, worn out, broken, 
old, tired, and have been to this goddamn rodeo too many times before everybody gets their yips on and, and declares victory and, and, and ushers in a thousand years of prosperity and, and, and light. They're doing this in Miami. If y'all haven't been to Miami lately, it is very Trumpy, a white, hot lava pit of insane lunatic over the top magaisma. Right. It is so cuckoo kachoo. It is so batshit. It is so crazy town that indicting Trump in Miami with a Miami jury, right. I would rather plunge 30,000 feet out of a plane without a parachute. So let me. So why do you think he was indicted in Miami and not in the district? Because he could have been indicted in the district, right? Well, uh, and I'm no attorney. Right. I just play. I just. I just play a relatively smart country caveman on TV occasionally. Uh, I'm not an attorney, but but the reason that I'm given to understand is they believe that an argument about venue would have been fatal to them since all the actions, all the criming, took place in Florida. While D.C. is the place that. The national press would have loved to have the story t- take place because uh, it makes it easy. Right. Um, it it just didn't. I mean, they, they're they're going to do it in Miami. And I just like to welcome all. I, I'd like to welcome all the reporters who think Miami is is a, is a dream city. Summer in Miami. I, I look. F- I look forward to seeing you guys down in South Florida in August when it's 105 degrees and 4 billion percent humidity. (laughs) (laughs) So, but here's my question for you. So they're going to this is going to now be the next two years of Trump lawyers fighting with the DOJ. Yeah. Look, here's the other problem. They were saying, you know, we don't want to do this when three months of a primary. Well, guess what? It's not going to happen. Yeah. So let's say he gets indicted on Tuesday. Then the clock starts. It's not going to happen, even though Miami, even the Southern District is considered a rocket dock and a fast mover, blah, 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 blah. They're going to take 30, 60, 90 days, however, however long before they bring him to trial. They will delay. They will have a billion motions to delay. It will go back and forth. This thing will be in front of a lot of Trump judges, by the way, just so everybody keeps their heads on straight. He really stacked South Florida. As this thing progresses, I think you're going to see that Trump, it pushes further and further and further and further into the Republican primary season. And look, I just, I am skeptical that at some point, either Lisa Monaco or Merrick Garland doesn't say, oh shit, this is looking really bad. Like It looks bad that they waited this long as right, my personal my opinion, but that's, just, but that's just me. I'm not a lawyer and I'm not the Justice Department, for if I was... There would be a much sterner approach to these sort of matters. Um, but but long story short, I mean, you are now seeing, I think the most interesting story about this is, I, I uh, God save me, Molly, I, I watched, I don't know, seven or 12 minutes of Fox TV tonight, right. just because I had to see what the, what, the, what the crazy was doing. It had Tim Scott saying that we need to pray for America because Donald Trump's being persecuted by the deep state, blah, blah, blah. It had Pastor Robert Jeffers assuring us that God himself would protect Trump um, because, you know, he's the godliest president we've ever had. Harris Faulkner looked like she was going to weep on TV. Um, and, you know, Bongo Bongino is like raging like it, like he's hopped up on a, a cocktail of steroids and methamphetamine. Right. The All of these people are losing their minds. And my favorite thing is that you're going to see, well, two favorite things. I'll get to the second one in a, in a second here. The th- what you're going to see is every Republican candidate is going to come out tonight or tomorrow and say, oh, the deep state and Merrick Garland politicized. They're trying to cover up Hunter Biden's laptop. Right. And that's why they're Biden crime family. You're going to see all that apparatus on the right. And not one of these goddamn people will say the word. They will not say, you know what? 
I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump if he's the nominee because he's been indicted on the esp- on espionage, like fucking spies right. who go to prison for life. And and by all accounts and his own admission, he did it. I'm not going to vote for the guy because they don't they don't want to cut their their legs off and say, well, I'm not going to support the nominee, even though that means that they're all telling you they're going to support an indicted man who is indicted in a serious prosecution for a serious federal crime that if anybody else did it, they would go to jail, do not pass go. And so it shows you the lie of the entire Republican field. And I've said this now to a couple of reporters and I mean it, they are trying to make horse shit into a horse race. They're trying to pretend that that this doesn't exist, that all the nominees or wannabe nominees who are out there who who say things like, of course, I would consider pardoning Donald Trump, like Vivek said today. We, we, we should clarify, Vivek now said he's pardoning. Oh, he's I'm sorry. Serious. He's pardoning. Well, that, frankly, that makes it worse. Well, he hasn't even honestly. been charged yet, right? Or he hasn't, we hasn't, the indictment hasn't been unsealed. Well, there is an indictment. The, 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 all the, all the reporting is as of the, this recording is, is saying the indictment will be, he will be, you know, when he's presented on Tuesday, he will be taken into a courtroom and the indictment will be unsealed. But <clears throat> I think a lot of the reporting is coming from people who are very well sourced down there, including Hugo Lowell and others. And so you're going to see all these Republican candidates. They will. There's a litmus test now. And that litmus test will be, have you promised to either pardon Donald Trump right. or have you promised to have Merrick Garland and Jack Smith eaten by tigers. Um, And and you saw it tonight, by the way, where Charlie Kirk comes out and says, we're going to Miami on Tuesday. And if you're not there, every Republican candidate or we're going to make you an enemy. Right. I mean, this is the brilliant thing about Trump world. And by brilliant, I mean, you know, they eat glue, but brilliant. (laughs) They have figured out that they're just going to make this about their guy versus everyone else. So, like, it's not their guy broke the law. It's the law is coming after their guy. And, right. and it's going to be the a little right. And I think this is going to kill all the other candidates. I mean, it just continually. Molly, 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 th- these other candidates were already dead. Right. They just don't they they're just too dumb to lay down and start stinking like roadkill. They were already dead. Not one of them has a chance in hell in this political environment, including Jeff Rose pup meat puppet Ron DeSantis. Okay. He has no fucking chance. The party I feel like if he gets higher lifts, he might have a shot. I I have a feeling if he showed up in a in a in a glamorous ball gown with long sleeves with some long arm long gloves. Opera gloves, long sleeves, long gloves, a feather boa and some sparkly heels. I mean, there's a lot going on. If he could get a little Um, tanner, he might. I mean, perhaps this is really just about getting the right shade of orange. It it well could be, because if you saw Trump's video on Truth Social tonight, he was the color of a furniture polish from the 1970s that would have fit a kitchen that was decked out in the colors of mocha, avocado and burnt. The goal is to always look like Tang. (laughs) But, you know, the fact that the fact that people call him yam tits does not go unnoticed. I have not noticed that. But oh. I think that is our. Mo- so while we do the very serious legal analysis that you think you know us for, uh, we will leave it on the word yam tits again. This is obviously we can tell this is not cable news. Let the record show Rick Wilson is bowing and saluting <laughs> and saluting and saluting. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. 
The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash strategic. That's oracle.com slash strategic. oracle.com slash strategic. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed up. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry though, he's fully recovered. Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ron Klain is the former Biden White House Chief of Staff. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Ron. Good to be back. When you came on the first time, we were just starting up this new podcast, and now... You have had a wildly successful tenure as White House Chief of Staff. Discuss. Discuss. Well, thank you. Thank you. 
you know, really, uh, when you're White House Chief of Staff, you get blamed for things that aren't your fault. You get credit for things that you don't really deserve. And I'd say <laughs> we had a great team at the White House. We had the president obviously leading the effort. And uh, I think the results are really a credit to my colleagues and to the president. And I was just uh, fortunate to uh, be involved in it and play a role in it. So I'm proud of what we got done in the first two years. There's a lot of work left to do, a lot of work left to do in the next years, a lot of work left to do in a second term for President Biden. You know, I'm, I'm proud of what we got done, but more focused on what needs to be done. So I want to ask you, one of the things that I thought was really incredible, and again, is this a function of the Biden White House being really good at what it does? Or is this a function of Republicans being really bad at what they do, or perhaps a combination of both? But the debt ceiling drama, which was, of course, created by Republicans, but could have really, I mean, I really felt like there were people out there, Republicans, who wanted to kind of kill the Biden economy in the hopes of getting their guy elected in 2024. I mean, did you think there was that kind of tension? There was obviously a big gap between the Republican bill that passed the House and what the president was willing to do. And I think that my former colleagues in the Biden White House did a good job of managing this situation. And some credit goes to the Republicans who, in the end, did agree to vote for the bipartisan compromise. We've always known the president's willing to compromise and find middle ground. And that's what he did here. He came up with a solution that protected his achievements. He said no to cutting back on the Inflation Reduction Act. He said no to cutting back on critical things we needed for our economy and agreed to, to dampen spending. And kudos to those Republicans who went along with that. So all's well that ends well. So I want to ask you, and also, I mean, I thought what was incredible is now this is not an issue till after 24. Yeah. Well, I think if you're going to go through this, you don't want to go through this regularly. You want to make sure that we keep protect our economy. And right now, there are a lot of risks to economic growth, but we're seeing continued economic growth in our country, really good employment growth low unemployment rates, um, boom in manufacturing. And so we want to keep all that on track. That's for sure. It is interesting to me. There have been a lot of like really quiet things the Biden administration has done that are not exciting, but are actually quite exciting, like the CHIPS Act and, and a lot of this manufacturing in the United States. They're kind of the things that Trump pretended to do, a lot of them. Will you talk a little bit about some of those? Yeah, I think I think that's a good point, Molly. I don't know. You know President Trump said he'd have infrastructure week. He never got infrastructure done. President Biden did. As a result, we're seeing massive investments in our infrastructure for the next 10 years, not just bridges and roads, but also connecting everyone to high-speed, affordable internet and getting all the lead pipes out of our system so that people can have healthy water no matter where they live. That's, I think, a big achievement and a historic achievement. I think the Chips and Science Act is going to be really critical. We, uh, you know, For too many years, we've been importing the microchips that are the critical elements of high-tech manufacturing and high-tech products and things like cars and TV sets and everything like that. They're all imported to the United States. And the president said, no, we're going to make these things here. We're not going to be dependent on foreign suppliers. If we had another crisis like the COVID crisis where supply chains got backed up, we want to make them here. And so he worked with Republicans in the House and Senate to pass the CHIPS Act, which is going to invest in chip fabs all over the country uh, and a lot of forgotten parts of the country to create jobs, good six-figure jobs, even if you don't have a four-year college degree, making the fundamentals of the new economy. And uh, because of that, and also because of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is investing in solar power and wind power, we're seeing a manufacturing resurgence in the United States. We're creating more manufacturing jobs in the U.S. than any time since the 1970s. And those manufacturing jobs are good jobs people can raise families on and will restore our industrial strength. 
as a manufacturing country. And I think that's important for our economic future. So now we're in this incredibly awful GOP primary where Republicans, they're starting to kind of get their message against Biden. And and I seem to remember in 2020 people saying, well, it's very hard to defeat an incumbent. And if the economy is good, you know, that it would be very hard to defeat Trump, even though wildly unpopular or twice impeached, you know, at that point, it was just once impeached. But it doesn't seem like people couch those kind of questions about Biden quite the same way. Yeah, I think my one consistent thing is Joe Biden's always underestimated. You know, he was underestimated in the 2020 campaign itself when people thought he couldn't get the nomination and people thought he couldn't beat Trump and he did both. And he's been underestimated in the 2022 midterms where people thought we were gonna have a red wave and he managed to lead the party to historic victories in 2022. And uh, he's being underestimated again if people think, look, it's gonna be a tough campaign. It's gonna be a hard campaign. I don't think anyone takes it for granted. But I do think he's going to beat Donald Trump a second time or whomever the Republicans wind up nominating in the end. Seems like Trump's the most likely candidate, but whatever they wind up doing, I think the president will get reelected because he has a good connection with the American people. He's done a good job and he'll have an agenda that'll be persuasive to people. And I think the choice is going to be a compelling one again, as it was in 2020. So I've been a believer for a long time and I'd rather be an underdog than an overdog. Let people underestimate him. Let's hit him with another surprise this time. I was one of the many people who just did not think he would ever win the primary. I just think that this has sort of worked for him, his quietness. But the other thing that I'm so shocked by is that just this narrative that he has brainworms is like a favorite narrative on both the left and the right in the media. And the Wednesday that the Eugene Carroll decision came out, I had the MSNBC on in the other room and I was listening to this press conference and I didn't know who it was. And whoever was being interviewed was like nailing this reporter, right? It was like, well, what's in the bill? And and I thought, and I went into the other room and it was Biden. And I just wonder, does he ever get exonerated from this thing he doesn't do? I don't know, Molly. I mean, again, I think people do underestimate him for whatever reason. I think he's performed very well as president. And so I think, you know, he'll keep on doing his job his way and run a campaign like he did in 2020, very effective campaign, and uh, let the pundits say what they may. The voters have uh, sided with him, and hopefully he can keep that going. Do you feel the age issue is something, again, pundits talk about a lot. I grew up during Ronald Reagan, so that was an issue, but not quite. I mean, do you feel like it's a real issue, or do you feel like it's a kind of pundit issue? Do you think voters care? I think some voters care. I think the question is, do they care about it more than they care about abortion rights or voting rights or democracy or the economy or health care? And so it is, it is a, it's a question voters raise. It's a question that I think should be answered by the president's performance and let the voters raise it and then let them make the final decision. I mean, what are the things now that the Biden administration can work on where they don't control the Congress, but they do still control the Senate? Yeah, I think, look, I think they have to, the most important thing they have to do is implement all the things the president passed in the first two years of his term. So it was good to pass an infrastructure bill. Now we have to start get building on all those things. And we're in the bill, build the bridges, build the roads, get rid of the lead pipes, connect people to the internet with high-speed internet. So there's a big work job there. There's a big job on implementing the Inflation Reduction Act so that we get these solar projects and wind projects built and we start to you know, have new renewable power all over the country. Because of the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to have construction of new electric vehicle battery plants all over the country. And we need to get that going. We need to build the plants. We need to, to, to hire the people to build the, build the electric batteries and 
equip the electric cars and build the charging stations and, you know, take the things the president did these first years and make them reality. And that's a lot of work and involves the entire government. And it's one reason why the president had a cabinet meeting the other day to kind of monitor where that was going and offer more direction on that to his cabinet. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, economic opportunities for our country to create jobs here, to lead the world in these new technologies. And that's what the president's intent on doing. And that's going to be a lot of the work of the next two years. One of the things that just happened is that there was the DeSantis campaign. I know you'll be shocked to hear this, is using AI for an ad of Trump hugging Fauci. (laughs) Could not have happened to a better whatever. Anyway, I mean, I think one of the things that worries me a lot is that there has there really hasn't been a ton of congressional. And again, this is Congress. You can't necessarily speak to it, but I'm just curious about your opinion. There hasn't been a lot of tech regulation, at least when it comes to social media. And now we have this AI. I mean, do you think that there is a world where this gets done? Do you feel like this is high on people's agenda? Do you have thoughts on where Biden is on this? Well, the president laid out his principles for artificial intelligence a couple weeks ago in a high-level meeting with senior executives from the industry at the White House. And I know he's going to continue to work on that and make sure we that this new technology, that the American people get the benefit of the new technology and what it can do for us in terms of improving the quality of healthcare and helping us to fight climate change without the negatives of the new technology. I think that's very important. Look, I don't, I don't think campaigns should pay. Campaigns made ads that told lies before there was AI. They're going to make ads that tell lies after there's AI. Campaigns shouldn't make ads that tell lies. That's not a technological issue. That's the campaign's issue. I think we need to harness the benefits of AI without suffering some of the negative consequences that even the creators of AI have raised as public policy issues. Your job as chief of staff is like probably one of the most important jobs in the world. What is the part of your job that is the most misunderstood? That's a great question. I'm not sure how many people understand it or even care. So misunderstood <laughs> well, we me. We do. We do. Yeah, I appreciate that. Kind of like a, a head team coach, as I said at the outset, I think people ascribe to me a lot of the results, good and bad. And I think what people don't understand is how much of the job is really recruiting staff and motivating staff and uh, taking the spears when things don't go well, but helping to spur the staff onward. You know, the results we got were because of a great team, a diverse team, the first time ever in history that the White House staff was majority female, first time ever the majority that the senior staff was majority female, with high representation of African-Americans and Hispanics and AAPI people on the staff. So I think, um, you know, a lot of it to me was making sure we hired the right people, making sure we had a diverse team. It's absolutely critical. I had a talented team. And I think we, I think we delivered that. So on the last episode, we had Justin Wolfers on the podcast. He's a professor at the University of Michigan, very smart. And he said, (laughs) this stuck with Jesse, both Jesse and I, he said that we have a recession vibe, but that we don't have recession job numbers and we don't have, you know, many parts of this economy are actually. We don't have a recession. We have a recession vibe. I agree with that. I think think Professor Wolfers is right. I think you turn on the TV, you listen to cable. All you hear is that a recession's coming. You've been hearing that for a year. Look, it, it may come. I can't, no one can foresee the future with a crystal ball, but we've been telling people that for a year, that the recession's just around the corner. No wonder people are unhappy with the economy because they've been told they should be unhappy. In fact, the reality is we have, for the first time in our history, 18 months of unemployment below 4%, 18 months in a row. We have the lowest black unemployment in history, one of the lowest Hispanic unemployment numbers in history, the lowest female unemployment number in history. People have jobs. Uh, incomes are rising. 
They're particularly rising for the people at the lower end of the spectrum who are often ignored. So the president said he built a recovery from the bottom up and the middle out. It's exactly what's happening with the surge in manufacturing. So none of this is a recession. And I think there's just a lot of bad talking about the economy out there that is definitely hitting people's psyche. Do you think that there is a chance for the Biden administration to message more on the economy? Or do you think it's one of those things where that there's been so much bluster about the economy from previous administrations that people don't listen to that? I think it's it's hard to message through it. But I think the president has an op-ed out this afternoon in the Wall Street Journal uh, that lays out his economic message very clearly and persuasively. The facts are the facts. And I hope people will continue to focus on the facts. And I hope the administration continues to sell this message but where we are, which is not a perfect economy, prices are too high. People are still feeling squeezed by that. I understand that. But if you think about where we were two years ago when Joe Biden took office, we were lined up in parking lots to get a box of food in the back of their car. And employment rate was almost 10%. Labor participation, there were people in the workforce was down significantly. Now our businesses are open, our schools are open. We have a resurgence of manufacturing like we haven't seen in this country in 40 years or more. And those are facts and realities that Hopefully, the administration can continue to communicate and will eventually break through with voters. Do you plan to go back into Biden world? I'm going to volunteer and help on the campaign, you know, in my spare time. And whatever I can do to help, I will. And we'll get the president reelected and then we'll see. I am definitely enjoying a better life now, being outside, not having a 24-7 job, a little more time with my kids and a little better health for myself. That's what I'm doing now. But I'm, but I'm definitely going to put my heart and soul into helping to make sure the president gets reelected. What do you think about Jeff Zients, who has your job now? Jeff's doing a very good job. I think he did an excellent job of navigating this debt limit thing. I think he's filling some gaps on the staff because of the departures. He's doing a good job on that. Uh, I have a lot of confidence in Jeff's leadership at the White House. The bagels. Do you think the bagels are good? Are they as good as New York bagels? I think the bagels are excellent. I'm trying to lower my blood sugar so I don't eat as many as I do. <laughs> the call your mother bagels, Call your mother right? bagels are quite yeah. good bagels. I will say it's hard to compete with New York bagels, so... They're very, very good. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you so much, Ron. And thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Molly. Keep up your good work. Thank you so much. Hi, it's Molly. And I am wildly excited that for the first time, Fast Politics, the show you're listening to right now is going to have merch for sale. Over at shop.fastpoliticspod.com, you can now buy shirts, hats, hoodies, and tote bags with our incredible designs. We've heard your cries to spread the word about our podcast and get a tote bag with my adorable Leo, the rescue puppy on it. And now you can grab this merchandise only at shop.fastpoliticspod.com. Thanks for your support. Ron Brownstein is a senior editor at The Atlantic and author of Rock Me on the Water. Welcome back to Fast Politics, my favorite, seriously, actually my favorite, I'm not even lying, Ron Brownstein. Hey, good to be here. Thank you. First, I want to talk to you. Today was a sort of, you know, <laughs> the, the few sentences make me more anxious than a Supreme Court decisions coming down. But this actually was a really exciting Supreme Court decision. Will you talk a little bit about what it means and what it is? Turns out, Molly, that there's some uh, footnote somewhere that says every time there's an orange sky in Washington, D.C., the John Roberts <laughs> court will decide for the 
the Voting Rights Act. It was a stunning decision. There's been very few through lines more consistent in John Roberts' era on the court than his determination to whittle back federal protection for voting rights. I mean, it's a crusade that he was involved in all the way back to the Reagan administration Justice Department. And certainly in a whole series of cases, most important of which, of course, was Shelby County a decade ago that eliminated preclearance under the Voting Rights Act. He has, in all sorts of ways, led decisions even before the current supermajority, as Mike Waldman calls it, that reduced and and retrenched federal voting rights protections, including uh, one written by Alito Brnovich a couple years ago, or maybe even last year, that severely weakened Section 2, the remaining section of the Voting Rights Act. So it was uh, surprising to the point of almost stunning that Roberts and Kavanaugh joined the three Democratic appointed justices today to basically strike down the Alabama congressional map that diluted voting power for for black residents in the state, about 27 percent of the voting age population. But only one of the seven congressional seats was drawn in a way that that could elect a, a black representative. And they said no. And rather shockingly. So There are multiple other cases that are to varying degrees. You know, as I I wrote a few months ago, first of all, there there is an extraordinary amount of post redistricting going on. I mean, there's a lot that's still in flux in a lot of different ways having to do with state elections and state Supreme Courts, but also federal lawsuits. And there are Voting Rights Act or other claims of racial discrimination against maps in multiple states. This could affect not only Alabama, but potentially Louisiana. Maybe Georgia, even Texas, South Carolina, although I see Dave Wasserman thinks those last two may be more difficult by the logic of this case. But nonetheless, it's a very significant ruling, particularly in an era where neither side can get very far beyond 218. You know, if we were back to when I first started covering politics in the 80s or even the 90s, when it was not unusual for one party or other to amass over 230 or even over 240, or in fact, in the 80s, over 250 seats, you know, the possibility that four or five seats might be affected by a Voting Rights Act decision would be interesting, but not dispositive. Now it could easily tip the balance of power. Yeah. And in fact, a lot of people, including myself, believe that had the New York redistricting not been thrown out and Cuomo not had his last laugh by having a a nonpartisan redistricting, we might have a Democratic House to die. You know, it's the combination, really, as as others have said, and I've written, I think it's the combination of a Democratic majority state Supreme Court in New York throwing out a Democratic gerrymander and a Republican majority state Supreme Court in Florida not throwing out an even more egregious Republican gerrymander. Those two things combined probably tip the majority in the House. Infuriating. So I want to ask you just one. I know you're not a court watcher. Well, you're you know, this isn't exactly what you do. But are you surprised to see Brett Kavanaugh? There have been whispers that Kavanaugh may not be as conservative. And again, this is faint praise as uh, Amy Comey and Gorsuch. I mean, do you think there's anything to that or you think this is just a whim? Well, I think, you know, in general, you have a conservative supermajority that is is moving law to the right on a whole series of fronts and will continue to do so. But what this says to me is that Kavanaugh is receptive to Robert's concerns about not 
seeming entirely to be enlisted <laughs> in the kind of political infantry of one party. And, and I think, you know, we've seen other suggestions by Kavanaugh elsewhere that, you know, he is concerned. He, he shares some of Robert's concerns about the legitimacy of the court. I don't think this changes the fundamental trajectory of the court. I mean, it's likely we're going to see something on affirmative action. The thing about the court that I've written a couple times is that we are in a situation that is a lot like the 1850s or the 1930s, where essentially you have a majority of the court that was appointed by the dominant political coalition of an earlier era that is systematically working to block the agenda of what is becoming the majority coalition in the country today. So in the 1850s, seven of the nine Supreme Court justices had been appointed by slaveholding Democratic presidents at a time when the new Republican Party was becoming the majority party in the country by opposing the expansion of slavery. And th that court in Dred Scott basically made the core agenda of the, of the new Republican Party unconstitutional by saying that you could not ban the extension of sla uh, slavery to the territories. And then again in the 1930s, same thing. When Roosevelt and the New Deal coalition was becoming the majority, clearly the majority political coalition in the country, seven of the nine Supreme Court justices when Roosevelt took office had been named by earlier Republican presidents, and they systematically in the early years blocked the agenda of this new majority until you had the switch in time that saved nine in 1930, you know, 1937, and they, and they kind of uh, switched. And I think something of the same thing is happening. I mean, you have, a, you have six members of the Supreme Court that were nominated and confirmed by Republicans who represent the parts of the country that are least touched by demographic and cultural change. And they are systematically ruling in a way that imposes the values of that red America on blue America, which is reflecting of the demographic change. And I just think this collar is going to get tighter and tighter in the years ahead. If, if this majority with today is an, a notable exception, keeps telling these diverse, more secular, more LGBTQ, younger generation that you can't have any of the things you're voting for. I don't know how that ends. You know, I mean, like I said, in, in, in the first time, in, in the 1850s, we never got to see how this would play out because we kind of had a civil war interrupt it. And then the second time, the court kind of abandoned the effort to stop the agenda of the new majority. But you have this very conservative majority that may, may be in place for 10 more years. And if they keep telling these young generations, which we're going to talk about in a minute, that are becoming the dominant block in the electorate, you can't regulate carbon emissions, religious liberty should allow people to uh, you know, evade uh, civil rights laws, uh, uh, states can't regulate guns, red states can restrict what, what is taught in classrooms or restrictions. Like if they keep doing that year after year after year, you're going to see pressure build up in a way that in those earlier instances, ultimately, we found a way out. Although certainly the first one, the Civil War, it's not exactly a right a way out. Yes. <laughs> but I do think it's a really good point that there's a real conflict between what this Supreme Court was installed to do and what the American people will let them do. And again, I mean, especially if you look at younger generations, I mean, this court is systematically positioning itself against not only the priorities, but in many ways, the identities of the generations that are that are growing in the electorate, because they are the most diverse generations in American history. They are the most likely not to identify with any organized religion. They are the most likely to identify as LGBTQ. 
you know, and they are the most likely to be concerned about things like climate. And you have this majority that reflects very much another America that is kind of on the opposite pole of all of those things that is going to, I think, you know, over a period, it has been, you know, really since Roberts, but potentially for at least another decade, trying to impose the values of one America on this other growing America. And I just think that is, I mean, who knows how that plays out. But Roosevelt, you know, Roosevelt talked about the phrase he used was the dead hand of the Supreme Court. And Robert Jackson, who was one of his justices on the Supreme Court, was later the Nuremberg prosecutor, talked about how the Supreme Court is always the revenge of the prior coalition (laughs) on the new majority coalition because people serve so long. And that is very much what we are living through now. Jesus, that's so interesting. I hadn't heard that. So let's talk about Ron DeSantis. You wrote a really, really interesting piece about Ron DeSantis, because what's so interesting to me and the thing I had been thinking about for so long about Ron DeSantis was he seems like such a bad candidate. I was kind of wondering why the National Review crowd had gotten so excited and galvanized behind him so quickly. And I thought it was just Trumpism without Trump. But you had a pretty interesting take. Right. I think your answer is probably right for why the National Review crowd is behind him. Not so much the never Trumpers, but kind of one degree off in the Republican Party. They don't believe you can beat Trump except by emulating Trump, really. But they like what Trump does. I mean, the fascism is not. They just want someone who can win while doing all that. I thought DeSantis' first speech in Iowa, his kickoff speech in an evangelical church outside of Des Moines, really encapsulated both what Biden has to fear and what might save him in 2024 above all. I mean, the reality is that we are moving deeper into the election season without an appreciable improvement in Biden's approval rating, right? He is still stuck closer to 40 than to even 45, much less 50. And, you know, you continue to see a big majority of voters saying they question whether he has the physical and mental capacity to handle a second term. I mean, he has gotten a lot done. I mean, he continues to prove himself a really effective legislative president. But the combination of inflation and age, I think, is this big cloud that inhibits his ability to kind of sell these accomplishments to the public. I want to pause for a minute here and have real talk with you for two seconds, because I think you and I have very similar political leanings, but you have much more history and I think much more informed. But why are his approval ratings, why are his numbers so bad when he actually is clearly, I mean, just at every... A very effective president. Yeah. Well, as I said, I think there are two principal reasons. I think inflation colors everything on the economic side. And I think inflation is clearly the reason he's not getting more credit for this great job growth. And as well as the manufacturing boom that he is and the investment boom that his agenda has put in motion. So I think inflation kind of eclipses a lot of the other things that uh, could benefit him by the end, before 2024, inflation. But I think, and I think it's, and I think it's the age. I think people Many of the Democratic pollsters and strategists that I talk to are frustrated, but now resigned to the doubts about his age not really dissipating by four. I think they were more optimistic when he took office that the voters would see him being effective and that would kind of dispel 
the concerns about whether he is physically and mentally up to this, but it hasn't, right? And if anything, they are remaining remarkably stable. And I think it's those two things, myself, inflation and age, that prevents him from getting credit for what he has achieved. That doesn't mean, however, that in the literally half dozen states where you're going to be spending $8 billion, that you can't sell those achievements more than we see in a national poll. But I do think that for Democratic strategists, the concerns about Biden's age have proven more durable and harder to dispel than they hoped originally. So like, so, so to go back to DeSantis then, I mean, like if, if you start off, if, if you watch DeSantis's first speech that he gave in Iowa, the first 15 minutes with the occasional dissentian flourish about medical authoritarianism or cultural Marxism, Notwithstanding that, the first 15 minutes was a pretty generic Republican case against Biden. One of the things that we've seen with DeSantis is that he is very involved in COVID. Do people really give a shit about COVID still? He does do COVID, but mostly he does. You know, the cost of living is too high. Crime is too high. The border's out of control. And they messed up withdrawing from Afghanistan. It was fairly generic. I mean, it was like what any Republican nominee would deliver. And in some ways, it was even more generic than that, Molly, in the sense that it's what any out party, the party out of the White House is always going to say, the president has messed things up and I will make them better by reversing his policies. And like after 15 minutes, given where Biden's approval rating is, you could imagine there were a lot of swing voters who are kind of nodding their head going, yeah, you know, you know, I kind of thought things were going to be better and I'm not really happy about the way things are going on this, that or the other front. But DeSantis didn't stop there. I mean, he kept talking for another half hour. And the next half hour was kind of the woke Olympics, almost to borrow from his phrase. I mean, it was, we are stopping transgender girls from competing in sports, and we are not backing down to Disney, and uh, we are standing up against DEI, ESG, and CRT. I kept thinking of the song from Hair, you know, LB, Joel took the IRT, and we banned abortion after six weeks, and we made it so you could have concealed carry, you know, no one, no one needs a permit to carry a gun. And you know, it really struck me that after 15 minutes that a lot of swing voters might be nodding yes, that they're not satisfied with Biden's America. But after another 30 minutes, they might be questioning whether they really wanted to live in the America that DeSantis was sketching. And, you know, that is basically what we saw in 22. I mean, how did Democrats win governorships and Senate races in states where Biden's approval was well below 50 where three quarters or more of the public described the economy in negative terms and where majorities said they did not want Biden to run. Again, that should not have happened by historical yardsticks. Why did it happen? It happened because there was an historically unprecedented number of people who said they disapproved of Biden or were dissatisfied with the economy who voted for Democrats anyway because they considered the Republican alternative too extreme and it seemed to me, listening to DeSantis, you saw that in just one hour speech, both the risk to Biden that you can make a case to voters, well, you know, things aren't going as well as you hoped. It's really time for a change. And then by the time they get finished, like, is this really a change that you want? Um, and I, I thought it was just an excellent kind of distillation of both the strengths and challenges 
facing the Republicans uh, as they move forward. And and by the way, of course, DeSantis's choice is that he is trying to run at Trump from the right to the extent of differentiating from Trump. It is always, maybe, maybe always to his right. So from the point of view of Democrats, you know, this could not be unfolding in a better way. Either Trump wins or DeSantis wins by making himself essentially even even more clearly identified with Trumpism. It tends to be that they don't throw out the incumbent unless there's something really wrong. Yeah. Well, again, we have not traditionally the best yardstick of what the incumbent is going to get is his approval rating. Right. And when people are dissatisfied with the incumbent, they find a way to swallow whatever reservations they have about the challenger. In 1980, first presidential race, I wrote about it all. Carter put enormous effort into making Reagan unacceptable. And certainly in 92, Bush, uh, there were ads with buzzards on, on like, you know, on these apocalyptic uh, landscapes in Arkansas with like buzzards, you know, he tried to make Clinton unacceptable. But because voters did not want to continue on the course they were on, they ultimately found a way to get to convincing themselves that the alternative was acceptable. As I, as I remember writing in 92, stability is risk. That was the challenge that Bush faced. Well, you know, that could happen again. I mean, you know, I mean, Biden, if Biden's approval rating stays in the low 40s, there is no question there is a risk that that he loses because historically the odds have been that he loses. But the 22 precedent is the reason Democrats are not lighting their hair on fire, because we saw exactly this model tested where we're talking about states where Biden was in the low 40s and Democrats won gubernatorial and Senate races which is very unusual in modern political history. And it was because these Trump style candidates were viewed as too extreme. And so if you're thinking about Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia and Arizona, the states and maybe Nevada, maybe those six, some combination of those six states are going to pick the president in all likelihood. We've just run a test where Democrats were able to win not every statewide race, but most statewide races in all of those states at a moment where Biden's approval rating was at a level where they should have lost. And so that's why I think Democrats are relatively sanguine about where things are. But again, as I said earlier, the persistence of unease with his age, I think, is unnerving to to some of the Democratic strategists. So Linda Lake, who polled for him in 2020, laid down an important marker in that story to me, where she said Biden did not have to get to 50% approval to win re-election, in her view, that he only needed to be viewed more favorably than his alternative. You know, like Biden says, don't judge me next to the almighty, judge me next to the alternative. And that's the first time I've heard anybody around Biden say he did not need to get back to 50 approval to win. So just kind of file that away, because it does suggest that they are looking at the dynamic we saw in 22 especially in these key states. Thank you so much. We ran way over because you're so great. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Mahoney Jung Fast. So the Supreme Court actually did something good today. And funny enough, we really see how much Republicans fuckery is at work from it. Yeah. So pretty interesting development. Everyone is completely pleasantly shocked 
Justice Kegstand, as we lovingly call him, <laughs> and Justice Roberts sided with the liberals on the court, basically saying it's unconstitutional to have a sort of racist gerrymandering, for lack of a better word. And so here we are because the house is so tight and the because the seats are so tight, this four seats or five seats could actually change the makeup of the house. And this is political report in the wake of the SCOTUS Alabama decision. We're shifting five House rankings to in the Democrats direction. It's very likely two formerly solid red seats will end up in solid D. So if those five seats all shift and nothing else changes, Democrats will win the House. And we like that because Republicans in the House are stupid. This is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.